0: Welcome to the Action Research Podcast, somehow the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action.
1: My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville, and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru.
2: And I'm Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based educational organization also in the highlands of Peru.
0: Today we're speaking with Dr. Linnea Rademacher. Linnea is a badass scholar, a professor at Abilene Christian University and their Department of Educational Leadership and Organizational Leadership, as well as the chair of the American Educational Research Association Special Interest Group on Action Research and aficionado of the American Outdoors. In this episode, Adam, Joe, and Linnea talk about the many ways action research can be viewed and how it intersects with popular education and leadership through things like iterative problem-solving and collaboration. We'll be sharing our conversation with Linnea over two episodes. If you're a regular listener, you know we like to try out new formats with our podcast. Today we bring you story time. A parable from India called The Blind Men and the Elephant referenced in the conversation will be shared at the end of the episode, so stick around. Now, on to your hosts.
2: So today we have a lot to talk about. Adam and I read uh, a chapter that you wrote last year that we both found utterly fascinating and, and really inspirational. We just want to delve straight into that. And then we have a few other questions as one of the leaders in action research. So I think that's what we're gonna focus on this podcast. Welcome, Linnea. Thank you for coming on to our podcast.
3: Thank you for having me, thank you.
2: So I think we should just get right into it. Adam, do you have some questions? I know you have a few questions. Do you have some questions you'd like to start off with? I do,
1: yeah. And I kind of want to just start broad and then maybe we can get more narrow because there's just so many fascinating topics that you address throughout this article. Just to mention, it's called Action Research and Popular Education, Implications for 21st Century Leadership and Research Practices. I'm just going to pull out one sentence to jump as a jumping off point, right? And it's in the very beginning of the chapter. That in this chapter, I position popular education and action research together as the foundation for leadership. And leadership is a theme throughout this article. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, sort of introduce the article, if you will, and your stance in, about how you see popular education and action research connecting and leading towards or being a foundation for leadership.
3: That's a great question. So I'm friends with Craig Mertler, who's the editor of the book that this chapter was written for, the Wiley Handbook of Action Research Education. And Craig was one of the former chairs of the Action Research SIG, and he approached me about writing a chapter. And I said, sure, what do you want me to write about? (laughs) He had all these these ideas, and he's a very prolific writer. I mean, he writes everything from research methods, texts, to action research books, to fiction mi- murder mysteries anyways he was planning this book and he asked me to write about popular education action research broadly and even though i had been to highlander center i said uh, what do you mean by popular education i literally had not done my homework so i you know he said well you're gonna need to find that out so of course i <laughs> did because i'm very type a driven and spent the next six months reading 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 a bookshelf here. This was one of my favorite ones. This is the Orlando Falls Borda and Aniso Rahman book, Action and Knowledge, Breaking the Monopoly with Participatory Action Research. Uh, just totally changed my life. And then Paulo Freire and Miles Hortons, though that's my other favorite one. I actually have two of these. We make the road by walking conversations on education and social mm-hmm. change. So I read and reread those books and was just transformed by both the idea of anyone can do this, which I had always felt in my heart of hearts that anyone can do this, which is why I teach in an EDD program. EDDs specifically are targeted to practitioners who are in the field who want the additional expertise. And so as I was writing this, I had recently started my position at Abilene. This was in, in 2016. I think I started writing this in 2017 sometime. And, you know, it struck me, and Craig said I could take it in any direction I wanted to, it struck me that this is the heart of why I do what I do. And what I mean by that is popular education, as I understand it from Horton and Frary and Fallsport is that you can make knowledge. You can advocate for yourself by figuring things out, understanding what's going on, have evidence to support your point point and challenge the status quo. And so the first response to that might be, well, leaders don't challenge the status quo. They are the status quo. That might be true at a very high level, but we've got a lot of middle manager leaders. We've got a lot of departmental leaders. We've got a lot of people who lead small nonprofits who are subject to the writ large society rules and so if you can come in and say here's the evidence i have here's what i found we often we here's what we found here's how we did it here's what we understand here's the implications you have the power to change that status quo and so that's kind of the trajectory i took throughout the chapter to show how that's been done around the world and then made that connection back to leadership as a leader if you have these skills to lead, to direct, to support, to encourage, to promote action research as a form of enacting popular education. You can make social change. And so that's kind of the broad answer to that question.
1: It makes me want to just have a quick follow-up. In, in your opinion, and based on your experience and your your research and your teaching, what would you say is the most succinct and straightforward definition of action research, at least as you refer to it in this article?
3: Yeah, so I think very simply action research is a practitioner whether it's a teacher or a nurse any organization a practitioner sees a problem something's not working i'm going to figure out why it's not working i'm going to implement a solution and i'm going to see if it works and then i'm going to reflect on that to see if i need to do something else so it's a method of problem solving I think there are a lot of permutations of action research. I think critical participatory action research is probably where I lean most, but it's not really, it doesn't have to be that. I think that in the real world of my students and when you're in a school or when you're in um, a hospital setting or you're running a nonprofit, every day you have problems that you need to solve. And having that ability to look at a problem and to decide on a potential solution and test that solution to see if it works. That's kind of the basic level that drives most of what I'm talking about in that chapter.
1: Thank you for sharing that. There's so many different ways to to view action research and so many different angles to look at. And that's one of the things that really draws me to it. So to hear that very sort of practical side of it based on, on your experience is always insightful, not only I think for us, but hopefully for our viewers as well. So Joe, what what was one of the things at the top of the list for you to pull out from this article?
2: So I think thinking about popular education, thinking about action research, and thinking about leadership, and and then building off of your definition, to me, one of the interesting things about popular education is its collaborative social justice nature. And the role and, and the overlap with action research in terms of, like you said, at its baseline, it is, I see a problem, I reflect upon it i decide on a course of action and then i reflect again and this is praxis this action reflection most of the time i think in action research and in popular education that action and reflection is done individually but it's also done in groups it's most often the knowledge creation is happening collaboratively and i think a lot of your chapter is about that and one of the things that you say and i'm going to paraphrase it is that knowledge creation often is seen as something from the academy where there are only certain people who can do it. But in action research and in popular education, knowledge creation is done collaboratively. It's done with the people. And just like in leadership, leadership's not done for the people. Leadership is done with the people. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I think it's a radical transformation of a conceptualization of leadership and research.
3: I think you're referring to the idea that uh, popular education is a grassroots effort to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And so, what, what happens in a lot of these examples that Miles Horton and Frary and Falls Borda and Rahman talk about are, and others across the globe, they talk about community members saying, This policy is bad for us it costs us money and keeps us impoverished, just as a, a general example. And in what I see as a professor in a leadership program here in the States is that leaders will say, this is a problem, here's how we're going to solve it, and there is no collaboration. The problem is identified at the grassroots level, but oftentimes they lack the skill or the self-efficacy to solve it. And so there is some expert who will solve it. In the United States, often leadership is conceived of as I'm the leader, therefore I have to have the expertise to find and solve problems. And what I say, in both in, in this chapter and in our program, I wrote both the qualitative action research course and also the organizational assessment and evaluation course. What I say is, if you don't identify problems in collaboration with both leaders and followers, and if you don't evaluate and choose solutions and evaluate those solutions in collaboration, you're going to miss the opportunity for sustainable change. And that's the biggest problem that, fa- that a lot of organizations face is change management. There's a whole genre of literature on change management and how it fails, it fails, it fails. And so my idea is it fails because you have one person deciding what the problem is and one person deciding what the solution will be. A collaborative effort, even in organizations, is drawn from the idea of popular education. That collaborative effort is what's going to lead towards sustainable change.
2: Yep, absolutely. And thinking about that collaborative effort and sustainable change, because I think right now we're living in a time where sustainable change is more necessary than ever. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in the chapter was this idea of the is ought fallacy that you mentioned. So a lot of research looks at what is and exists in terms of good leaders, but doesn't think about what ought to be. But just because some leaders exhibit these behaviors who are considered good, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what good leadership is. And I think that is interesting because it's very difficult for a lot of people to have that paradigm shift.
3: Well, I've had that conversation a lot with one of my colleagues. You know, it's very popular right now to use the terms of servant
2: leadership. Transformative leadership, tra- servant yes, leadership, right. transactional <laughs> <Certainly>. leadership. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: And, and they're drawn from research that asks leaders what they do. And they're not, I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but I think that When we try to put a label on a leader, instead of looking at the qualities of the leader, we're missing what needs to be done. You know, we're missing the collaborative nature. We're missing interacting with the followers. We're missing the details in order to try to generalize and get some fancy label. That's what I think about that. I think what's relevant is the leader is really facilitating an organization In conjunction with these followers, you don't have an organization without these followers. I mean, unless you're a one-person organization, which is, then you can do whatever you want. But (laughs) if you have even one other person, you have to work with them and you have to listen to them. You have to listen to each other and you have to work with each other to find solutions to problems. Do
1: me a favor and and help me tie this discussion about leadership and collaboration back to action research. I know that for me and in my dissertation, for example, you know, like I there's a lot that I have to do on the front end. It's very organized. I have to plan for what's to come. And everything is somewhat structured and formalized, right? Yeah. But kind of what I hear you saying is that there's an inherent for leadership to rise to the service in this collaborative uh, approach to solving challenges. I think there's something inherent about that in which, you know, there's a movement behind it, right? It's that There's an organic flow. So help me draw the connection between the impact of uh, and value in creating change through leadership and collaboration and action research as a methodology within the realm of academia.
3: So it's messy. It's not organized and formal like your dissertation. So there is a, a kind of tension there, especially when you're talking about a dissertation in the academy, you know, it's very lock In most places where you have to do a chapter one and a chapter two and talk about the literature in your chapter three, you have to really plan out what you're going to do and you have to plan your research questions and your interview questions and even more so if it's quantitative, you have to plan so much. And it's messy because those of you that are in the field or if you've been in the field and done any research at all, you know that it doesn't always go as planned. It rarely goes as planned my dissertation completely changed course after I collected my data. I didn't collect data that was relevant to my research question. And so we ended up changing, I ended up changing the research questions and redoing half my lit review. Sorry, that's probably a scary thing that you all don't want to hear, but.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's in my near future, actually. So,
3: But it's interesting. I mean, and that's, <laughs> And in, in retrospect, that's part of the joy because that's part of the creation, but the, I digress. Okay. So how is that connected to action research? I think action research lends itself well because it is a more, it's really, I can think of it like Jerry Pine, who wrote the book, Teacher Action Research, Creating Knowledge. I might have the title wrong, but Gerald Pine, G-E-R-A-L-D-P-I-N-E, like it's tree, Creating Knowledge Democracies, which is one of my favorite terms you know, it's a paradigm. It's a way of thinking about things that we are trying to figure out what's going wrong here. And if you're in an organization, if you're a teacher in your own classroom and you're studying your own classroom, you may be finding the problems and solving them on their own. You you may find more strength in collaborating with the students in your classroom to find the problems and solve them. If you're an administrator, There's the idea of administratively driven action research, which is sometimes in clashes with the idea of teacher practitioner research, because administrator agendas can be different from teachers. But I think the whole idea hinges on that collaboration part. And so action research as the idea of solving problems, I think it fits so well into leadership because your work, especially collaborative action research, right? that whole genre and my favorite new book is this one that came out last year by Jessica Smart Goulian and Abigail Tilton researching with a decolonizing approach to community-based action research. It's just a wonderful testament to the idea of collaborating even with people you don't know. Going in, so my student is using this as a to help him as he's creating his plan for his research and he doesn't live full-time in this community he lives part-time in the community but he's an implant to the community and he's going to research with and the idea of researching with leaves a lot of unknowns so when you're planning that dissertation you can plan it and he's passed his proposal so i should say yay to that but everybody on the committee said be flexible what you want to happen may not happen and you should work with the community to see what they want to happen to help solve this community-based problem. And so that's what we keep emphasizing to him and I think the be flexible is probably the best statement for that.
1: I'm also in the realm of sort of practitioner scholarship. I'm doing research on my own organization. And, you know, the work that I'm doing and the data that I'm collecting and the findings, it's meant to sort of have various uh, realms of impact, not only inform my own organizational practices, but also help inform the way that we're working with communities locally based on their perspectives. And I think as it relates to a collaborative approach It's tough because in a sense, I feel like I'm on an island, right? Because I have to be in the driver's seat as it relates to my dissertation. But at the same time, action research is inherently collaborative and it is inherently a process that's participatory. So it's just something that I'm grappling with on my end. And it's good to hear people like yourself who have Written so extensively about these processes and participated in them as well, you know, to get your two cents. Because I, I can only imagine that it's not just myself that's having some of these questions as a doc student using action research as their methodology. But I'm sure there's others out there as well. It kind of makes me want to like rewind a little bit and ask you how you got into action research and if when, when you did your dissertation, if was action research your methodology when you did your dissertation, or if not, what was the transformation that you took to end up where you are right now?
3: Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so no, it wasn't. I was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and the first I'd heard about action research was, well, in my qual class, but also I took a curriculum class with Sue Nofke, who is no longer with us, but she's written extensively and has one of the SAGE handbooks on educational action research. And so we talked a little bit about action research at that point, and my first job after I got done with my doc work was as the director of evaluation for a grant-funded project at Indiana State. And one of the tenets of the grant was to help teachers in the professional development schools enact action research in their districts. So as the newly hired evaluation director, I read copiously about action research and became more and more enamored with it. Unfortunately, at that time, the schools we were partnering with were not very accepting of the idea of action research. And that's one of the messy things that I was referring to, Adam, is you know, there still exists this idea that knowledge is created in the academy and teachers, which is kind of the area that I've been working in for a long time, should not be creating knowledge or research. They should just be doing what they're told, right? Where we know quite a lot that teachers have to do, they think on the fly and, and Shone's book about reflective practitioners and, and their thinking on the fly all the time and action research formalizes those processes of problem solving in action. And so I think the messiness is sometimes access and self efficacy of the people involved. And Horton talked about that, and more Horton than Falls of but Horton talked about working with communities as former director of the Highlander Center decades ago. They wanted him to be the expert in research and what to do. And he would say, I'm not. The expert i'm your guide i'm your guide you have to decide where you want to go when it came to analyzing data i'm going to teach you how to do it well you just do it you have to do it with me or you're not going to own it you won't own it so this is where we draw that that ownership of problem solving in leadership is you have to be part of it or you won't own it and it's not always easy to get people to do it it's not always easy to get people involved it's not always easy to get access
2: Yeah. And this really sparked an idea and and a question about the chapter, because I see these interaction between popular education and action research and leadership as like completely connected, but at different layers and levels too. So in some respects, it sounds like what you're saying is action research is also a paradigm that could be taught as a popular education subject in some respects, like as a paradigm or as a methodology. Do you think that's an accurate way of thinking about it. I know there are other ways of thinking about it too in your chapter because action research also overlaps with popular education as kind of a way of collaborative decision-making in popular education moving forward to, to create knowledge democracies and create knowledge from the ground up. But is there a sense where popular education pedagogies are also requiring some kind of facilitation of action research? Or is, you know, what's the oh, relationship? I think so.
3: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think, the, you know, the first time I was introduced to that was my visit to the Highlander Center with ARNA back in 2016. And that's exactly what the director talked about, is that mm-hmm. not all of their grassroots efforts involved action research, but most of the time they did because people were coming with grassroots problems in their communities whether it was systemic like racism or it was economic or whatever it was. And so they really facilitated the group's learning how to address, to research, and to change the status quo in their communities. And I think they were linked, which I think is what I tried to show in this chapter, but I think that linking is what made the popular education that much stronger. Finding your community problems and solving those community problems, it just gives you so much power as community members, that this is my community. I don't just live here and it's our community. And just because you've always done it this way for 200 years doesn't make it valuable to every member of the community. How can we make it more valuable to everyone? So I do think that action research is integral to popular education what I've seen and read.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just, as a side note, I read, we make the road by walking um, and pedagogy of the oppressed in in my master's program. And it definitely set me on a path. So it was really helpful to hear a little bit about how you integrated that as well. So Adam, do you have any follow-up questions?
1: Yeah. If you could offer us some insight towards your lens as it relates to modern day popular education movements in your Article, you know, you you talk about the history of popular education and action research. A couple examples that you offer is in Australia in the 80s and 90s, there was a movement between the conservative government trying to sort of restrict education and keep it focused on training labor workers around industrial workforce type lessons in education in which there was sort of an uprising in which they were entitled to other facets of education. You also reach back to in European history, dating back to the Middle Ages and repression as it relates to exposing population to science and religious reform and these types of things. I mean, these are pretty deep-rooted, important movements. I mean, this isn't something to be glossed over. And we were talking before we started recording today about some of the recent political events. That we recently saw in the United States. I don't want to get too political on the podcast, but I think we all saw recently the movement in Georgia when there was a runoff election. And it seemed to me, when I was reading your article, it reminded me of what was happening in Georgia. I was starting to look at it through a lens of popular education and a movement to share with people about their rights and as it relates to where they stand in a democracy. And that ultimately led to legislative change and a shift in, in their understanding of their role in a democracy. My question is what lens, right? Do you look at something like that through as it relates to a modern day movement of popular education? You know, do you look at it through a lens of action research? Do you look at it through a lens of social justice? I mean, I know that those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but what type of insights do you have um, with respect to that?
3: Wow, that's a big question. And I don't know how valuable my insights are on that. I can say I'm not a particularly political person, but you cannot help but be touched by the events that have happened over the last four years in the United States. The recent events in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and the work that she's done, I just think that is gives me hope for the country. And it gives me hope for the idea that popular education can have change in the status quo.
1: It kind of ties back again to the question that I had earlier about how do we connect that through the lens of action research? Is there some sort of intention in which we can look at a movement such as that and share with others what's happening? You know, tie tie it back to action research again. I I think
3: maybe you're looking for a line and there isn't a line. I think popular education is people looking to change where they are, and that's very basic, and action research is part of that change. And I I don't know that it's right now part of what went on in Georgia, but I would imagine that there could be action research events taking place, even if they don't call them that, because we have so much misinformation spewing about right now, especially in the United States conspiracy theories, actual lies about data, about information. And so people are crying for how do I know what's accurate? How do I know what's not? And so the the popular education movement says you can know, let's start with finding out what your rights are. And then the, the action research part is getting in there and finding the data, learning how to analyze data learning how to make sense of research and data so that you can make informed decisions and i think that's the key here is that we're saying that everyone can do this this is not something that only high and mighty professors in the academy can do that you can do this you can make sense you can evaluate you know we teach students how do you evaluate resources you know you've You can't just use any journal out there. You can't just use things that you collect from a newspaper to support the need for the problem. You have to have um, real research and you have to evaluate that research and you have to be able to say what the the, uh, limitations are of that research and how it affects the outcomes and implications. And it does take education to do that. It doesn't take a degree to do that, but it does take education. And you have to have the willingness to... To want to know to want to know those to dig deeply to to dig deeply into what matters and what is and what could be and understand that so much of what we find as researchers I'm just thinking of I don't want to be too esoteric but you know I was just thinking of like at the beginning of this COVID stuff and Dr. Fauci is the U.S. well I don't know what he is but you know, he's an epidemiologist who is on, on Trump's staff, but really has been a good funnel for more and more research. You know, people say that, well, he was saying one thing in March and now it's changed. Well, of course it's changed. That's the nature of science. The more you learn, the more knowledge you gather, the more your models, the more your theories, the more your hypotheses change because you've gotten more knowledge and, and helping people to understand that it's just a little bit of popular education that we try to do with family and friends around here. But that's the nature of It's helping people understand that the more we learn, the more we know.
2: Yeah. And, and the more we then know what we don't know, and the more we, we know, need to we ask more questions.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's action research. Mm-hmm. That's the cycle of action research. Okay. We learned this, but we don't know this. So let's go on and do another cycle.
2: Thinking about popular movements, the Highlander Centers is, is really, to me, a fascinating space. And it's a space that I was introduced to in my master's degree, but I know very little about only because I read We Make the Road by Walking and then did a little research. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your experiences at the Highlander Center and, and think about that as this popular education, action research space, you know, this pocket of hope. We might want to call it
3: yeah so i had not heard of it before i went there in 2016 and of course i've done my homework since then but i found it to be we learned about some of the education that they were doing in the various communities a lot of their work in the last three decades has stemmed from groups working against racist policies and community problems revolving around race but then also in economic issues in various communities and a community will come to the Highlander Center and ask for help in that regard and so the current director at that time had us do several exercises that we had a day at the Highlander Center where we were we learned a little history and then we le- we got to sample a little bit of what they do and the room had rocking chairs big rocking chairs all around and we sat in the rocking chairs and And we brainstormed in groups of a few, we talked about, it was all so comfortable that the variety of opinions expressed, you felt safe. You felt safe talking about your community problems, your difficulties. I think this is one of the things that's difficult with oppressed communities, whatever the oppression is from, whether You know, it's coming from above or it's coming from status quo policies, wherever the oppression is coming from, systemic problem. You often don't feel safe talking about these. You don't feel safe in your community. You don't feel safe in the world. Think about how people are still saying that there is no such thing as systemic racism in the United States. And those of us that see it, and I know I'm a white middle-aged woman, but work in a very diverse context you can see it you know my best friend is in a a biracial marriage and she talked about the difficulty they had over the years getting mortgages and people putting crosses on their lawns and being followed home and how many times her husband was stopped on the way home from work the way home from work what are you doing here I'm going home from work. At this hour of the night, yes, I work at the power temple. You know, your mind goes, how can you say there's no systemic racism? I lived in Chicago for many years, the heart of redlining, which is the the districting where we're not going to give mortgages to houses here because there's too much crime, which means the people that live there, are it, it just keeps fomenting the poverty. And you are afraid. You are afraid if you're in that situation to buck the status quo. And so the Highlander Center starts by making a space for that, by making open, safe spaces to talk about these problems. And I think that's the first step. Put it to leadership, if you're in an organization and you're a follower, a worker, right? And there's a problem in your department, or wherever you work, who are you going to go to? It depends on who you feel safe with. If you do not feel safe with a particular boss, You're not going to tell that boss about that problem, are you? And so you're never going to feel that you're part of any solution because you don't feel like you can say anything. You're not going to say, well, I I don't think the solution works because X, Y, Z, because you might get fired. So creating a safe space, I think, is one of the most powerful things that I experienced at the Highlander Center.
2: That really resonates with me and my research so Part of my work is running a community-driven education center in a small community in Peru, Quechua-speaking community, but they also speak Spanish and I speak Spanish. And I've been involved with the community for 10 years, but that safe space, it takes a while. And if the Highlander Center has some way, just through the being of the center and the history, to build that safe space very quickly, that's really impressive because it took years before we got down to the real stuff where it felt safe for everybody to say things and be like, actually, I don't really think that, but I think this, or I wanna have this question. I don't know if that's appropriate, but I'm gonna say it because I feel safe. And then we can work through it collaboratively together and we can share things that are weighing on our chests or on our shoulders that may have not been shared before because of this you know, lack of safety or just feeling of, I'm not sure if I can trust this person yet. And so when you can trust the people when you can feel safe to say things that you know may or may not be kind of socially like in the in that like performative sense of socially appropriate once you know you can break out of that and you can actually have real conversations that's really huge and it's great to hear that that exists at the highlander center wherever we come from and even within an organization there are hierarchies and there are areas where there is oppression even more so where hierarchies are because of identities and economic disparities or historical marginalization and things like that. So that foundation is re- is really important. And it's really interesting to hear about that as a space that this center just is able to create the space.
3: As someone who is in a teaching and a leadership program, we're thinking, well, we don't have community grassroots efforts going on. But you think about organizations. And I studied a nonprofit for my Dissertation. I did a case study, by the way. You asked me if I did action research. I did not. I did a case study. I also studied with Bob Stake in my uh, dissertation work, and I loved him and I loved his work, and I did a case study. But there was a nonprofit organization, and you think, well, everybody's in the nonprofit for the good of the cause. And then you find out that leadership is a really important part of it. And people who are afraid to contradict the leader, start to participate in something called groupthink, where they just agree with whatever's going on because disagreeing is not going to go anywhere. And so then I think status quo in that case is not so much oppression, but it is stagnation for an organization.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a great way to think about status quo and the different ways of conceptualizing status quo, depending on the context. And the relationships at play in those dynamics.
1: it's interesting for me as well to talk about leadership and organizations. I'm a founder of, of an organization, it's a nonprofit organization. And we one of our core philosophies is that the work that we do should be led right, that word led by the community members in which we partner with. And I kind of feel like the way in which we're talking about it now, it somewhat implies like an internal hierarchy, right? That even within an organization like a nonprofit, there's somebody or some entity at the top that's taking the lead in which you create a safe space for the people in which you work with to then go out and do the work that's going to help you address your mission. And then I compare that with our approach to working with community members where it's like, you know, the people that we work with are, you know, and oftentimes in the language of nonprofits, we use the word beneficiary. Well, I really don't like that word, right? Because I know that I have so much to learn from the people which we work with. I know that the reality is that that they're the experts, right? It's not me. I work with farmers. I'm not a farmer, right? I, I studied administration and you know nonprofit management. So I, I know all the fancy mod- models that you can use to create activities that are responsibly driven. But at the end of the day, it's the people that we work with that we look to to take the lead in the work that we're doing. And I think that that in itself is a quality of leadership, right? Being able to be humble and and, and have a sense of humility to say, there are certain things that need to be done in order to manage and administer what's going on and keep the engine turning, if you will, for the organization. But as it relates to what's going on outside of this actual office and get to some level of impact, well, well who's determining what that is and how we get there? Am I really the best person to do that? I don't think so. You know, I think it's the people which we work with. And, and I think that's not only a characteristic of organizational leadership, but, but also action research.
3: Yeah. I think that's uh, why I gravitate towards servant leadership, if you're going to choose a you know, an modifier for the word leadership. I think that the best leaders are those who recognize that they're really facilitators. I even object to the idea that a leader has to have a vision for the organization. It's not my vision. It's their vision. It's the, the organization members' vision, why they're working for that organization. And you are there to, to serve them and help lift them up to be the best they can be, the best farmers they can be. How can you do that? What do you need to be the best farmer? Well, we don't have access to adequate water or we don't have access to adequate drainage. We keep getting bucked by the city on putting in the drainage tiles or whatever it is. You know. And so as a leader, you can be that person who facilitates some of those connections to others in the community to help that organization be the best that it can be. When you talk about nonprofits and the people that they serve are the beneficiaries. And I've heard that before because I have a lot of students who are leaders in nonprofits. The really successful ones that I see who are growing the organizations are the ones who see their clients as members of the organization, not just receivers, but as members that drive the direction of the organization, that drive changes in the organization, and the ones who are really seeking out the perspectives and expertise of those members. They're really making sustainable changes in organizations that need to be made. You've probably heard this example. When, When I was in grad school, one of my professors brought the idea of the elephant and the blind men. You heard that story where a blind man standing at or blind woman, whatever, at standing at different corners of the elephant, they define the elephant differently based upon where they're touching. But they're all part of the elephant, right? But they all have a different perspective because that's all they can see. And so we are like that in organizations. We can only see what we can see. Even a leader is only as strong as what they can see.
1: Yeah, and bring it full circle. I think that it illuminates one of the larger conflicts in action research and how it is accepted or viewed in the larger academy, right? Because you can draw a parallel to say in traditional research, well, I'm a researcher, I'm defining the question, I'm defining the problem, and I'm going to go out there and get information and kind of be in it, take the steering wheel. Action research, you know, it, it kind of is more like what we're talking about in the same organizational leadership structure where maybe I'm not the best person to be at figuring out what the questions are. Maybe I'm not the best person to define what these problems are. You know, actually it, it, it's driven by the people in, in this participatory endeavor. And I think to me, that's what I've, well, that's what I kind of keep circling back to is one of the larger conflicts and why action research, you know, but there is so much pushback, if you will, as to yeah. whether it, it qualifies as traditional academic inquiry but for me personally, I'm like, screw that, you know, like at the end of the day, I think this is what's going to actually lead to some sort of meaningful change where you can stay in your office and never leave and publish things and continue to put them on your bookshelf. Like there's those of us in the, what we call the island of action research that are out there actually trying to achieve meaningful change. So it's just interesting to draw a parallel between that practitionership and scholarship.
0: Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Lania. Remember how we said we like to try new things? Well, Lania hosts her own podcast called Action Research Global Conversations. So for fun, we're going to have a crossover event. You can tune in for part two of this special episode on Action Research Global Conversations, available on all podcast platforms. Now for story time. The Blind Men and the Elephant is a parable from India that has been adapted by many religions and published in various stories for adults and children. This version of The Blind Men and the Elephant is freely accessible online. There were once six blind men who stood by the roadside every day and begged from the people who passed. They had often heard of elephants, but they had never seen one. For being blind, how could they? It so happened one morning that an elephant was driven down the road where they stood. When they were told that the great beast was before them, they asked the driver to let him stop so they might see him. Of course, they could not see him with their eyes, but they thought that by touching him, they could learn just what kind of animal he was. The driver agreed and let the men approach the elephant. The first one happened to put his hand on the elephant's side. Well, well, he said. Now I know all about this beast. He is exactly like a wall. The second felt only of the elephant's tusk. My brother, he said, you are mistaken. He is not at all like a wall. He is round and smooth and sharp. He is more like a spear than anything else. The third happened to take hold of the elephant's trunk. Both of you are wrong, he said. Anybody who knows anything can see that this elephant is like a snake. The fourth reached out his arms and grasped one of the elephant's legs. Oh, how blind you are, he said. It is very plain to me that he is round and tall like a tree. The fifth was a very tall man, and he chanced to take hold of the elephant's ear. The blindest man ought to know that this beast is not like any of the things that you name, he said. He is exactly like a huge fan. The sixth was very blind indeed, and it was some time before he could find the elephant at all. At last he seized the animal's tail. Oh, foolish fellows, he cried. You surely have lost your senses. This elephant is not like a wall, or a spear, or a snake, or a tree. Neither is he like a fan. But any man with a particle of sense can see that he is exactly like a rope. Then the elephant moved on, and the six blind men sat by the roadside all day and quarreled about him. Each believed that he knew just how the animal looked, and each called the others hard names because they did not agree with him. Their collective wisdom leads to the truth. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the action research podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the action research podcast.